0: We're towards the end of our series in the book of Numbers. There are only a few chapters left. And where we are in the narrative is that um, Israel has gotten... Uh, almost entirely through the wilderness. They're on the verge of being able to cross into the promised land, and they're making preparations as a community uh, for before they enter that land. So today, we're going to actually cover um, this section where there are a lot of rules laid out uh, about sacrifices and vows. Pastor Kevin talked about the sacrifices in chapters 28 and 29 last week. We'll be doing the vows in chapter 30 this week. Also, though, um, for those of you who are connected to the liturgical calendar, you know that this is the beginning of the Advent season. So it's the season in the Christian calendar, broader Christian calendar, where um, we celebrate the days and weeks leading up to the birth of Jesus, which in the calendar culminates in celebrating Christmas on December 25th. So we're actually going to do Two things in, in our discussion today. One is we will talk about Numbers 30, but we're also going to uh, use this lesson as our beginning uh, into the Advent season. And the next for the next few weeks, we'll actually be preaching through Advent. And then after that season is done, then we'll pick up with the book of Numbers to complete it. So there's, so a, a transition is going to occur. It will make sense. We'll follow along with me. It will, it will be a, a natural, logical flow to how we're going to connect the two. But um, Numbers 30 is the text for today. Now, the the text itself actually has to do with vows. Uh, In in other words, making promises, probably promises in uh, in this ancient context that involved um, uh, asking God to give you something and then uh, vowing to offer something back in return for getting it. And uh, it may seem pretty straightforward what rules surrounding vows should be. If you make a vow, you should keep it. Uh, Israel's chief skeptic, the author of Ecclesiastes, uh, uh, in an enlightened way said, it's better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Uh, Jesus himself affirmed the stakes that are involved when you make a vow or a promise, um, where he would say, let your yes be yes, let your no be no, that um, when, when you do commit to doing something, you do it, period, period. Uh, Given that that's the case, and this is the view that the biblical witness has had about taking vows, it's interesting that this entire chapter actually um, deals with a lot of contingencies for when you don't have to keep the vows that you made. So let me just read the first few verses of Numbers 30 just to give you uh, an idea of the kind of content that's in this chapter. And then I can, uh, I'll can i summarize for you what's in it. So here's how it starts. Moses said to the heads of the tribes of Israel, this is what the Lord commands. When a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but must do everything he said. When a young woman still living in her father's household makes a vow to the Lord or ob- obligates herself by a pledge and her father hears about her vow or pledge, but says nothing to her, then all her vows and every pledge by which she obligated herself will stand. But if her father forbids her when he hears about it, none of her vows or the pledges by which she obligated herself will stand. The Lord will release her because her father has forbidden her. There It goes on like that in various scenarios. So the gist of Numbers 30 goes with, if a man makes a vow, he's got to keep it. If a daughter or a wife makes a vow, And her dad or her husband doesn't speak up when the vow is made, she's got to keep it. And if the wife ultimately breaks her vow, uh, her husband is responsible. Uh, If her dad or her husband objects to the vow that she made, she doesn't have to keep it because, quote, God will pardon her. Uh, Similarly, if a divorced or widowed woman makes a vow, she's got to keep it. She, in that context, has no man present to uh, mediate the, the effect of her vow. Um, and then lastly, if a woman makes a vow before she gets married, there's a stipulation for what you do when she makes a vow before she gets married, then she gets married and the husband learns about the vow. But either way, the gist of all of it is the same. Also in all of this that you realize by what's not mentioned is that there is, uh, it assumes these, these laws don't really cover cases of single adult women, right? Like they, so it's really in this context of, uh, women who are widowed or divorced, or our daughters, or wives. Now, in order to get at what this text is teaching us about vows, I imagine that before we can even do that, many of you uh, will not even be able to go through that unless we address the patriarchy that's present in that passage first. So let's get that part out of the way, and then we'll talk about what is actually going on in Numbers that can have enduring value to those of us who don't want to assume a patriarchy for the vows that we make. Now, in order to understand the patriarchy that is occurring in Numbers 30 and the assumption that goes into it, uh, and the idea that it looks like uh, God is legislating uh, sexist double standards of vow keeping in this situation, we need to uh, take an approach uh, that is often called by theologians, it's a a theology of divine accommodation and princesses. So we need to talk about these two things (laughs) I will explain. You will see how the two are connected and how the latter can help us understand what's going on with the former. Namely, what we'll be talking about is how the way we think about princesses today in our cultural context and media can uh, can have a, a helpful analogy to what we see God doing in this text that seems to affirm a kind of sexism that would have been present in that day. There are lots of uh, images that might have come to mind when you thought of princesses. Here's in particular what I have in mind these are are iconic Disney princesses. But in particular, I think the type of princess that's the most helpful for us to understand accommodation for the sake of progress is this princess. This is Princess Diana of Themyscira, aka Wonder Woman. And uh, this, uh, the, the movie that is represented here actually came out last year, and it was significant for a lot of reasons. Probably the reasons that you would have heard of it uh, is that it was the biggest domestic opening for a female director. Patty Jenkins was the director of this movie. It was the highest-grossing female superhero movie ever, by far. Um, it was the highest-earning superhero origin film, right? That means that it actually introduced the character <clears throat> and wasn't a sequel or anything like that. And I think we can objectively say it was the best uh, DC extended universe movie, because please don't tell me about Batman versus Superman. Okay, that's, we're not going to talk about that. So it, it also might be uh, hard to appreciate how significant these achievements that I just listed off were um, if you have a short memory span. Because not long ago, when you thought about flagship female superhero movies from the DC Comics universe, this is what you'd have to deal with. This is uh, – uh, the greatest waste of Halle Berry's talent ever. The, this was her in the movie Catwoman, and this was not even like one of the m- uh, main pieces of artwork uh, that was used to promote the film. Uh, I couldn't include that the main piece of artwork because I think it might be uh, inappropriate for some of the the people in our audience today. the The reality is is that in terms of um, in, in terms of how we think about female superheroes, um, we've actually come a long way. And Wonder Woman is a great case in point for the challenges that go with trying to, um, uh, trying to push for equality within a patriarchal context. So let me uh, give you a little bit of history on some of the controversies surrounding Wonder Woman to help you get an idea of where I'm going. So, this was from the, uh, the early 1970s. Um, there is a, a generation of uh, feminists that Gloria Steinem was the leader of in the 60s and 70s. And um, this was uh, the, a magazine called Ms. And it was a, in, uh, a flagship magazine of the feminist movement. And it's an, an inaugural issue. Wonder Woman was on the cover. She was seen then, like presented as somebody who stood for female empowerment uh, and a lot of the ideals of feminism. So for a long time, she carried this positive connotation that, that uh, seemed to push for equality. Um, you know, uh, over time, you know, she had kind of kept this kind of uh, status uh, to the point that uh, just a couple of years ago, the United Nations made Wonder Woman their, their honorary ambassador for the empowerment of of women and girls. That was, that was an official announcement. Um, the, uh, the director and the actress who played Wonder Woman in the picture I showed Gal Gadot, they were, they were both there. They were present for that. However, as you can imagine, uh, there was a controversy with choosing Wonder Woman for, uh, such an honor. And, uh, there, there was actually a petition that uh, was rumored to have come from uh, members from within the U.N. itself. But ultimately, this petition was able to get Wonder Woman removed from being the U.N. ambassador for female empowerment. Um, and there was a lot of criticism. So part of the, uh, one of the voices of the criticism uh, was that it's alarming that the United Nations would consider using a character with an overtly sexualized image at a time when the headline news in the United States and the world is the objectification of women and girls. The petition's authors wrote, and then they uh, went on to describe Wonder Woman as a shimmery, thigh-bearing bodysuit with an American flag motif and knee-high boots. If you are familiar with the iconography of Wonder Woman, I think that would make a lot of sense. That criticism resonates with a lot of people. I remember when uh, the Wonder Woman movie first came out, many critics were saying that uh, this movie is far from being any kind of great feminist achievement or step towards equality. Uh, in fact, um, James Cameron, uh, who's a famous director and writer, uh, was one of the uh, vo- vocal critics about Wonder Woman when it came out. He's quoted in The Guardian as saying, "All of the self-congratulatory self-congratul- back-patting Hollywood's been doing over Wonder Woman has been so misguided. She's an objectified icon, and it's just male Hollywood doing the same old thing." I'm not saying I didn't like the movie, but to me, it's a step backwards and then he goes on to offer a contrast like characters that he has written like Sarah Connor so James Cameron uh was uh involved in Terminator 1 and 2 in Aliens in Titanic um and so the you know he was considered a voice in this discussion about the portrayal of women as as heroes uh in film and uh this um this kind of criticism was echoed by the, the blogger Susanna Breslin when she said, in reality, uh, Wonder Woman's just a playmate with a lasso. Now, to be fair, um, Patty Jenkins, the director of Wonder Woman, and other people came to, the defense, came to the defense of the movie, offered criticisms, one in particular about James Cameron. They said that this is yet another man's opinion uh, that is uh, ultimately resulting in policing how women should dress. And I get it. I get that 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 criticism also resonates with a lot of people. And there were a lot of people uh, pointing out that uh, Wonder Woman can be empowering in a very, what's called a third wave feminist kind of way that takes this approach of women can do anything and they can be multiple things at the same time. They can be both powerful and strong and at the same time express their sexuality if they want to and use their sexuality if they want to. This is a debate Within feminism, within groups of people who want equality for women and who want what's best for both sexes, it struggled to come to an agreement in how to approach this one character in this movie. Uh, Gloria Steinem, who I just mentioned earlier, the one who launched the the uh, flagship magazine half a century ago, um, commented on uh, this Wonder Woman movie by kind of uh, striking somewhat of, of a middle ground and saying. Um, uh, she said, I know some women were disappointed by all the makeup and makeup. She means like every, by all of the overt sexualization of Wonder Woman. She said, but maybe I'm desperate. I was just happy that the Amazons had wild hair. So this is her offering a concession in this context to say, basically it's saying, baby steps, people. That's what you, we have to learn to appreciate. Now, when, uh, when I first read this criticism, I followed this whole debate all the way through for many reasons. It converged on several aspects of my own life that, that I, uh, I'm very interested in, not just comics, but also uh, women's roles and, and all of that. I actually, I remember when I first read this, her comment, I thought, that was weak. I thought that she was making a concession that, they, that she shouldn't have. Why is she so desperate? Why, do, why can't we have higher standards for ourselves uh, that promote uh, the kind of vision of a superhero that we would want? But she's doing this kind of this, this approach of, you know, meeting people where they're at within a patriarchal culture and appreciating little steps forward. And I will also admit that um, although my initial reaction was to say that I disagreed with the statement, I thought it was very weak, that changed when the princesses entered my own home. <laughs> so this is just a couple of weeks ago. This is one of my daughters who uh, loves Wonder Woman uh, and wanted to be Wonder Woman for Halloween. And we, as as a background, and I understand that we probably have many complicated thoughts as a community on uh, princesses and our children and how much or how little we want them to engage with that. So I'm fine. I welcome disagreements and a variety of opinions. I'm about to. I'm going to be vulnerable and reveal what we uh, the approach that we've taken so far. We're not big on princesses in our household. We're not uh, aggressively anti-princess, but we for sure have not been promoting it in any way. We have made it clear to our children that some of the most famous Disney princess stories like Sleeping Beauty and Cinderella are, we just say, they're not good stories. That's what we tell our kids. And I would have told them that Wonder Woman uh, is not a good superhero. I would have said that. Um, and And a lot of it would have been because of the way she dresses, because of how she uses her sexuality or just the way that her sexuality is interpreted by a lot of people. Um, the reality is, is that when she sees Wonder Woman, she sees a woman, a princess who is powerful and strong, who is not afraid of the men around her. And she gets to wear a skirt. That's literally that was like the bridge to how she wanted to be Wonder Woman for Halloween because she gets to wear a skirt. Wonder Woman wears a skirt. even though that was like one of my biggest criticisms, which was how is that effective body armor for a warrior? And yet here we are. The reality is is that through her, I've been able to appreciate that for many women, for decades, Wonder Woman has been a gateway, uh, a beginning point for women to learn about the many ways that we as a society can empower women, even if our starting point is within a patriarchal context in which the way we draw characters are basically made for men's enjoyment. So I've come to appreciate that there is value in meeting people where they're at and pushing them forward when it comes to when it comes to gender equality. And I do think that that we 're not far from even a gold standard in how women are portrayed in superhero movies because we 've already I believe have met the, the gold standard. This is Princess Shuri, for those of you who are familiar with the story of the Black Panther. She is uh, in, uh, in, in the world of Black Panther, the fictional um, country of Wakanda in Central Africa is this global superpower in technology, uh, and she is, as a teenager, the chief scientist. Um, Of Wakanda. She has developed all of the the technology and weaponry that exists in the world. She made Black Panther's costume. She is Black Panther's younger sister. uh, And she is she is the princess of Wakanda. And actually in the comics, she eventually becomes Black Panther herself. She becomes the queen of Wakanda. And she's a character who, although she is beautiful, her beauty has literally nothing to do with the storylines that have been developed about her. If you've seen the Black Panther movie, you will realize that as well. To get to Shuri, like a character like her that exists, I've come to think that we probably needed interim characters like Wonder Woman to bridge the gap and move us forward. And I do think that there's value in acknowledging that, hey... There is there's enormous uh, intelligence and wisdom that goes into meeting people where they're at within a patriarchal system and ultimately getting us to this. And for those of you who are actually able to follow who owns what in the comic book world, because Disney owns Marvel, which produces Black Panther, she is a Disney princess. She is our gold standard of a Disney princess. And that's in an acknowledging that look, there is, there is a way to handle progress. And I really do believe that that is what is going on in the book of Numbers. I get it. I get it that looking at it today from your own vantage point, when you hear about uh, women's vows needing to be mediated by the men in their lives, their vows don't, they ultimately don't matter unless they have a husband or, or a father to approve it. I get it that from this vantage point, you can say, well, that seems really backwards. But For the time, I think you would really appreciate that it was not backwards at all. What this was doing was showing that, yes, the rules of women making vows is certainly set within a patriarchal context. But at the time, it set the tone that women's vows should be taken seriously and women should make vows carefully because their promises, their commitments, their hopes mattered too. And these laws in the Torah forced husbands and fathers to acknowledge, address, and have some skin in the game when their wives or daughters made vows to God. God did not create or ordain patriarchy. This is something that we, as the teachers at Spark, have talked about on an ongoing basis. It's a discussion that begins in Genesis 1 and 2, acknowledging how God made men and women to relate to each other, and it acknowledges that patriarchy didn't set in until people made it in Genesis 3, and it's been proliferating ever since. God is desperate to use whatever God can to work within our patriarchal systems to ultimately dismantle them. The early Jesus movement, I believe, got this message. The seed that's planted in Numbers 30, the one that takes women's vows very seriously and forces men to take women's vows very seriously, blossoms, but in early followers of Jesus. One, I think that that highlights the significant progress that was made by followers of Jesus standing on the traditions of the Israelites of the past comes from the Apostle Paul uh, in his letter to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians. So in this context, what, what Paul is doing is he's actually addressing uh, an argument that was made by some of the people in the, the church community in Corinth that uh, maybe that even like whether you're married or not, there's this higher standard, a higher way of being where you're above things like marriage and having sex. That was, that was the context in which he was doing. And Paul, what Paul is doing is he's responding by laying down a principle of everything you do is guided by self-sacrifice. It's a principle of you love somebody else and you do what's best for them. And he applies that to the context of marriage itself, even something as intimate and personal as sex. So this is what he says uh, in, the context, in this context uh, responding to that criticism. He says, the wife doesn't have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Now that probably sounds expected to you of what people would say in the culture back then. The far more revolutionary part is the next line. He says, likewise... The husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. You may take for granted that Paul said something like this, but for him to have said this in both the Jewish and Greco-Roman context that he did was nothing short of revolutionary. For all of these debates about who's in charge in marriage or how gender roles should work at home, in church, or in society, it's important to call out the only time The New Testament uses the word authority, the Greek word for authority in the context of marriage is here. It's right here. The only time it happens. And what is authority in this context? It is perfectly mutual. The vows that husbands and wives make in marriage for Paul as a follower of Jesus are both equally important. He goes on to finish saying, don't refuse to meet each other's needs unless you both agree for a short period of time to devote yourselves to prayer. In other words, he's, uh, he's responding to this idea, well, maybe uh, at different times in your life, uh, it's important to take a fast from something in order to reset. Many of us take technology fasts or social media fasts. One example of a fast that one could take to reset with God would, if they were married, to abstain from having sex with your partner. And what Paul is saying is like, hey, If you're going to do that, you need to be careful and consider your partner when you're doing something like that. That is serious. Your vow is not made in isolation. And it's both parties, the husband and the wife, who are equally responsible for upholding these vows. Now, one can argue, uh, thinking through all of this, this, then that, okay, fine. So let's say that the patriarchal context of Numbers 30 is just assumed. It's not God's ideal. And God is working through that, uh, that context in order to push people to appreciate the autonomy and agency that women have in making promises and having dreams and hopes that, that God can fulfill. You could ask yourself, if you take away the patriarchal context, then what is the whole point of all of these contingencies of these vows in Numbers 30? I would argue that the main takeaway, the, one, the, the part of this, this chapter that's enduring is not the patriarchal veneer. It's the idea that it takes a village to fulfill a vow. Fulfilling vows is a team effort. Uh, we talk about in uh, all of these ways that uh, marriage, for example, uh, as, as a vow, is is something that two people make with each other. And that is true, but uh, just like we, we have that phrase, no man is an, is an island, no marriage is an island either. Um, there is something that I have come to really appreciate about—if you've ever been to Anglican or Episcopalian or, or other high church weddings— where um, it's not just the the husband and wife who make the vow saying, I do. There's often, if you're familiar, uh, a time where you ask the audience if they vow to support the couple that's making their vows in the presence by saying, we will. That is explicitly acknowledging that when that husband and wife make vows— they're doing it in the context of a community, of a group of people who are all in it together. Now, the idea of taking, uh, you know, it takes a village to fulfill a vow, va- I, I realize is probably, uh, it's, a little bit painful for a lot of people in our audience today to actually appreciate. Um, because what I'm saying then is that in the context of Numbers 30, what, what uh, the author is trying to get you to impress upon you is that, you know, when you make promises or vows or you have dreams that you want to fulfill and you take steps to fulfill it, you should take your spouse or your parents into consideration. It's important for your spouse or your parents or your church to have your back when you make promises. You have to negotiate your own hopes and dreams in the context of community. Now, I know that that is hard for individualistic American Christian ears to hear because I've heard so many of us say things like, who cares what your parents think? You got to do you. That's the idea, right? It's that there is nothing else short of pursuing your personal passion and commitment. This uh, example, I think, comes up so starkly uh, when we look at passages that look at these uh, parent-child dynamics. I can't tell you how many disc- discussions I've had with white Christians about what the boundary conditions of this kind of discussion is. So there's a there's a uh, part of the Paul's letter in Ephesians in Ephesians 6 where he's talking about what, what mutual submission looks like in a household, like what it looks like to uh, sacrifice yourself for the sake of other members in your family. And here he says, children, obey your parents and the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, quote, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on earth. I've heard so many people say things like, right, right, right. Children should obey their parents, of course, until they're 18 years old. Because when the apostle Paul wrote this, he had an asterisk in mind and he said, right, until you're 18. And then you don't have to obey your parents anymore because you don't live in their household. To a lot of Asians and and even Asian Christians, that kind of logic makes no sense. Where on the text do you ever get this kind of rule of uh, independence of moving out of one household means all of a sudden you're free to not consider your parents or something like that when you're making uh, important life decisions? If you've seen the movie Crazy Rich Asians, I think they have they have characters that that encapsulate the weirdness uh, of that kind of American attitude so well. By it's when the matriarch of the you know super wealthy family says pursuing one's passion, how American! Like the idea that that is like the thing that uh, that should drive you forward. Now, um, the reality is is that. The, I, I am, uh, as an Asian American and uh, a child born to immigrants, I, I get the tension that comes with both of these. I think that often in a lot of Asian American contexts, um, you know, parents can actually have a kind of authoritarian uh, level of control over their children. That's not at all what I'm advocating, but I am encouraging us to be willing to uh, examine this idea that what, that whatever you do in life, even the things that you think you're doing for God, are things that you are doing for yourself, by yourself, as if it doesn't have an impact on other people. Numbers 30 is forcing us to think through the fact that the vows that we make matter. The promises you make have consequences for the people around you, and the people around you have the ability to impact your ability to keep, to keep your vows. That's what accountability is, right? It's people in your community holding you to these standards of vows and promises that you make. If you want to drop out of medical school to pursue a career in art, fine. But you have to understand that your decision could have financial implications for other relatives in your life, right? When you tell people, uh, you know, unabashedly like, hey, you know, if you got a calling from the Lord, Lord is telling you to do this, you got to do you. Forget the consequences. That is not an ancient Near Eastern way of thinking. That is not a communal way of thinking. That is not a collectivist way of thinking. We have to keep these things in mind. Now, Realizing that vows are this powerful weapon that we can use for people to express and fulfill their hopes and dreams, I think is a good time for us to transition to one of the earliest stories that kicks off the Advent season. So, again, remember the, the Advent season is the anticipation of the birth of Jesus, the Messiah of Israel, Savior of the universe. And uh, in, in, that, uh, in, in the anticipation, in the beginning of the Advent season, there are many women who have hopes and dreams, and make vows, and have vows made in their presence, and they play a critical role in pushing the story of God forward. And I think it's important for us to acknowledge those voices right now. So now this marks our official transition into the series of Advent, which we'll be in for the next few weeks. Let's start with the mother of baby Jesus himself. We'll start with Mary. Now, we, we first encounter Mary's approach towards uh, uh, this idea of what God wants to do through Mary, uh, through this message that an angel sends to her. So here's what uh, the angel says to her uh, when he visits her with news. "'Do not be afraid, Mary. "'You have found favor with God. "'You will conceive and give birth to a son, "'and you are to call him Jesus. "'He will be great.'" The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. That's, that's the message that the angel gives. And he ends it with, for no word from God will ever fail. That is vow language. That's saying God is making a promise and saying, you know, when God makes a promise, it is sure to happen. There is this beautiful reversal that is occurring uh, if you have Numbers 30 in the backdrop in this story right now. Numbers 30 is all about women making vows and how the men in their lives can affirm or deny their, their vow. What's happening here is God is making a vow to Mary. And God needs Mary to affirm God's vow. And that's what she does. Her response is, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. We have come full circle. God needs these women to push the story forward. And these women with their hopes and their expectations, and their own vows were ready. They were prepared. They had been anticipating God's movement, and when the time came, they were willing to affirm God's vows as God needed. Now, in uh, in this angel's message, he alluded to Elizabeth, Mary's relative, who is also pregnant in a miraculous way. And she is actually pregnant with uh, the man who would become John the Baptist. And here is Elizabeth's response when she is told about what's going to happen through her. She says says to Mary, "'Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear.'" but why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears. So this is when she first meets Mary. She says, as soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. Elizabeth also is on the page of God has made a vow, we will affirm it. Even John the Baptist is on page. He's he's ready. This he leaped <laughs> leaped in his womb when Elizabeth showed up. This is the amount of teamwork that's happening in making these vows come true. She's not the only woman that that uh, played this critical role. There is Anna the prophet. So after baby Jesus is born, he is brought to the temple to be presented. And, and then here's how Luke describes it. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband uh, seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84 She never left the temple, but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying, coming up to them at that very moment. So this is uh, Mary, Joseph, and Jesus coming up to them, uh, coming up to her at that very moment. She gave thanks to God and spoke about the child. She spoke about Jesus to all who were looking forward to the, the redemption of Jerusalem it is often noted that in order for her to have devoted herself, for Anna to have devoted herself to uh, worshiping at the temple for as long as she did, um, it would probably involved some kind of commitment or some kind of vow that that was how she saw her vocation. And that one of the reasons that she was able to make that kind of vow was because she had no man in her life anymore to mediate whether she was going to do that or not. She, on her own, was the one who decided in her own agency that this is what she was going to do. She was prepared for the movement of God in her midst. And when baby Jesus came to her, she became actually the first gospel preacher that we have in record in this story. She is preaching the good news about Jesus to everyone around her who will listen. Mary, Elizabeth, Anna, there are far more. This is God moving with vows through women. He has been doing it since Israel has been waiting to enter the promised land, since before, since during, since Jesus's time, and since then. So for those of us who are familiar with this overall biblical narrative, yes, we know women make vows. We absolutely do. We also know women make announcements, not announcements in the normal way we use it. We're talking about women say good news. They proclaim it to the people around them, the saving news of Jesus. We also know from the Advent stories that women make men. They are the ones who literally made them and shaped John the Baptist and Jesus to be who they were going to be. If you follow the story of Jesus's ministry too, you know, women make money. They were the bankrollers. Of Jesus' ministry in that process. We also know that once Jesus commissioned his disciples, women made disciples as well. We know Priscilla taught the people in her midst. We also know that women make laws. Now, this is the, this is the overall biblical soup. It's not just after Jesus that, uh, that, you know, God's people got this kind of message. Throughout the Old Testament, throughout Israel's story, even before Jesus came, God was working through his people, working through women to make things happen. Women like Queen Esther made laws laws to celebrate how God had saved the Jewish people through Esser. Women make noise. They were often the leaders in lamenting the injustice that Israel was experiencing in that time. Women make war. Deborah, as a judge, is arguably one of the most successful warmongers in Israel's time and is able to accomplish these great and often violent things uh, in the name of Jesus. Jael, one of her soldiers, is able uh, to—well, you can read the story to see how she wins uh, these victories for Israel— Women make peace. There are times where wise women of Israel were solely responsible for averting wars and battles and several people dying. If you read uh, in the era of the kings, women make sacrifices. They routinely made sacrifices before, during, and after Jesus, where they decided that no, gender equality is not the way that it ought to be. But you know what? We have to work within the system we have and push people forward. So that is the witness in the Bible of all of the things that women do. And the season of Advent kicks off a celebration of a few of these things that women do in these early birth narratives of Jesus and John the Baptist. Advent is a reminder that whether it's Jesus' birth, his ministry, his resurrection, women were involved every step of the way, pushing the story forward when God needed them to. Thank God for those women and the vows that they made and the vows that they affirmed in this process. That is why we're here today. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for everyone you have been able to employ in the work of your kingdom. We repent, we're sorrowful for the ways in which we have silenced or stifled half of this population in being able to do great work for you. And yet we marvel that you have been able to accomplish so much and move us forward so much despite the roadblocks that we've put up. We ask that you humble us and show us these creative ways to work within our context to push the story of God forward, to help us to use this Advent season to celebrate uh, and be grateful for everything that Mary and Elizabeth and Anna and so many other women have done in bringing the Jesus movement to life. You are so good and powerful and strategic and wise and great, and you accommodate yourself, and you work with whatever we give you, and it is amazing, and help us to do the same. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.